Let's turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm 80. We read this in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21, which teaches us about Holy Catholic Church. So as we read through Psalm 80, I encourage you to look for instruction about the church. Psalm 80, to the chief musician upon Shoshanim Edith, a psalm of Asaph. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedst room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent, she sent out her bows unto the sea, and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. So So will not we go back from thee, Quicken us, and we will call upon Thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. Cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of the Holy Scriptures. It's on the basis of Psalm 80, In many other passages of God's Word, that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21.
Verse 21, what believest thou concerning the holy Catholic Church of Christ? That the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to Himself by His Spirit and Word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and every one who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of Him and of all His riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be His duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church that we consider this morning as we look at Lord's Day 21, is Jesus' church. And if we forget everything else that is said this morning, may that one truth be impressed upon our hearts and upon our souls. We are looking at studying As an object of faith, Jesus' church. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. Not the deacons' church. Not the church of the rich donor who opens wide giving generously to build the walls, the physical walls, so we have a building in which to to worship. It's not the rich person's church, but it's Jesus' church. How many needless fears and worries we have because we forget that very truth. It's Jesus' church. As we think about the future of this congregation, or more broadly, the future of our denomination, or of Christianity in general, upon the face of this earth, how often is it not the case that we consider the church apart from the headship and love and protection 
of Jesus. Always the church is the church of Jesus Christ. Already in the New Testament, before Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh, the church was the church of Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, when that serpent came into the garden, when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, that was Jesus' church there. When Noah and his family floated on the water, it was the church of Jesus Christ floating on the great waters. When they passed through the Red Sea, when they were in the wilderness, when David and Solomon were kings, and later on when they were exiles in Babylon, and by Babel's streams sat and wept, it was Jesus. Let's consider then this morning, not your or mine or anybody else's church, but Jesus' church. Believing Jesus' church, first we'll consider her Catholicity, second her gathering, and then third, our membership. A change from what I put in the bulletin. Third point, our membership. We can speak of the Catholicity of Jesus' church from two different ways. We look at the Catholicity following the confession that we make in the Apostles' Creed. believe and holy Catholic church. So what is this Catholicity, not Roman Catholic? Two different perspectives here of Catholicity. One with regard to Time, church, consider from the viewpoint of time, is Catholic. And then the second, from the perspective of space or location, where the church is at, she is Catholic. The church is Catholic in that she transcends time, and the church is Catholic in that she transcends all of this Earth. She doesn't occupy just one space or one location, but the church covers the whole of the earth. First of all, considering the church from the point of view of her transcendence over time, what we mean here is that the church of Jesus Christ is not limited to one particular moment or time in history, but rather that throughout all of History, the church of Jesus Christ is an, an organism. She's alive. We confess that here in this Lord's Day, the beginning of answer 54, that the Son of God from the beginning to the end of the world gathers, defends, and preserves to Himself. There is no organization, no institution on this earth that is older than the church. Even marriage 
the institution of marriage has had less time on this earth than the church. Where first Adam was created, and he was a part of the church of Jesus, and then, a little bit later, Eve was created, and Eve was brought to Adam. Marriage and the family unit are a close second in in length of time that they've been present on this earth. That the oldest organization, institution upon this earth is the church. There is no other political organization, no nation, no company, no business that even comes close to equaling the length of time that Jesus' church has existed. Man will boast of His great strength, His power, His influence upon others. Nations will brag of their ability to conquer whom they want. They will speak of the fact that they hope to live into all perpetuity and into the future. And yet, no organization even comes close to having the same enduring power as the church. The church will never be removed from off of this earth. Try though the world might to wipe the church off of this earth. And we can expect that soon, even in Western nations, that political powers are going to try to eradicate the church from off this earth. Try though they might, the church will never be destroyed from off this earth. Because it's Jesus' church. Not because there's anything special in you or in me. Later on in this Lord's Day, in answer 56, we speak of our corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. The enduring power of the church is not found in her members, but is found in her head. Jesus. And then the second aspect of the Catholicity of the church is the fact that she is gathered from the four corners of the globe. She's a universal church. The Catechism says here that Jesus Christ gathers, defends, and preserves to Himself by His Spirit and Word out of the whole human race. Out of all of the races that are found upon this earth, Jesus Christ draws from out of that whole human race a church. In fact, this is the very purpose for human existence upon this earth. Anthropologists study that question, wrestle with it. Why why is it that there are human beings upon this earth? They look at it from a secular point of view, and the best that anthropologists can conclude is we're upon this earth in order to 
improve ourselves for the betterment of society upon this earth. That's the purpose of our existence, to improve upon what the previous generation had. But the Word of God teaches us a quite different purpose for man's existence. Why is there mankind? Why does mankind spread over the whole face of this earth so that God, through Jesus Christ, can gather out of that whole human race a church which is presented unto Jesus Christ as a royal and glorious bride. Sometimes we can think of the Catholicity of the church as being an exclusively a New Testament concept. And certainly it is the case that at the start of the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church at Pentecost, that then immediately there was there the speaking in many different tongues. And then following that point at Pentecost, the Word of God did go forth out from one nation to the next nation and beyond. So certainly we see more clearly revealed in the New Testament the fact that the church is universal. But already it is taught, albeit less clearly, in the Old Testament. Think, for example, of Jonah, who was sent unto the Gentile Ninevites. He was commanded to cry against it, but then they repented. Think of the Canaanite, Rahab, who perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies in peace. And she was adopted into the covenant nation, covenant community of Israel. Already in the Old Testament, we see the idea that the church is going to spread outward. The idea is taught even in Psalm 80 that we read this morning. In this psalm, the psalmist pictures the church with the figure of a vine. Verse 8, Psalm 80, verse 8, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Verse 15, again, And the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. So the church is presented here as this living organism. It's, it's, a, it's a plant, a vine, and this vine is growing. And notice the description of it in verse 11. She, referring to the church, she sent out her bows unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Here we see taught the idea that the church is going to spread out unto the sea and unto the river. The Old Testament Israelites would have understood that to mean that the church is going to spread out unto the Mediterranean Sea and unto the Jordan River. But not only would the church spread out unto that Mediterranean Sea and Jordan River, but eventually she'll spread out over 
and past all of the seas and rivers of the earth. So the church of Jesus Christ is a universal church. That's why we confess in the Apostles' Creed that we believe an holy Catholic church. We believe an holy Catholic church because we cannot see the entirety of the church with our human eyes. One might ask, why is this an article of faith? Believing the church. I can see the church. I don't need faith to believe it. I can come here on Sunday morning and I can see it with my physical eyes. So if we can see the church with our physical eyes, why then is it listed as an article of faith? I believe in holy Catholic church. Is it not exactly because she is Catholic that she covers the whole of this earth and that she's found throughout all history that it must be something that we believe. We can't see every place that God's church is gathered. We can see the local manifestation, but we can't see the entirety of it. And so we confess that we believe in Holy Catholic Church. What is the significance of the Catholicity of the church? Why is this so important? Four things we note about the significance of this truth. Number one, why is the church Catholic? The church is Catholic because the Redeemer of the church is a Catholic Redeemer. Revelation 5, verse 9, we read there, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed to us, to God, by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The Lamb was slain for that very purpose in order that He might gather from every nation of this earth God's people unto Himself. For the church not to be a Catholic church with diversity, with people of different nationalities, with people of different skin colors, with people who speak different languages, would be for Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the church, to have failed. The church must be a Catholic church because the Redeemer of the church is a Catholic Redeemer. When He died there on the cross, He redeemed people from every kindred, tongue, and people. Number two, what is the significance of the Catholicity? It serves for us as a constant source of humility. Humility when we consider how small we are in comparison to the worldwide, ever-present church. 
church. Who could take credit for such a thing? Who would have reason to boast? Who could say, yes, I did this because of my contributions to the church, because of what I added, because of my act of service, or my help, or my encouragement given to others. The church of Jesus Christ is what it is. No. When we consider how grand, how large, how universal is Jesus Christ's church. We are given a reason for humility. Thanks be to God that I am privileged to be a part of that church. Third, what is the significance? Considering the Catholicity of the church, reminds us that our focus as a congregation should be outward and not inward. Verse 11, she sent out her blows unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Or recall the early New Testament church when the members of the church voted to send Paul out and another as a missionary. The church was small at that point in time. The argument could have been made, we need Paul here. Paul was a gifted theologian, pastor, preacher. Let's keep Paul here. We, we need Paul to remain here with us in Jerusalem because of how young and how fragile the church is. But the saints of the early New Testament church did not. But they sent him out. This is consistent with the great commandment that God gives to us to love God and to love the neighbor. Love for the neighbor means that we as members of the church look out. How can we assist those who are members of the household of faith? And then beyond, how can we spread the word to those who have not yet been brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? An outward, not an inward focus. And then fourth, the significance of the Catholicity of the church. It teaches us about what it is that unites or holds the church together. So when we consider the diversity of the church, then the question must be asked, what is the unifying power of all of these members of the church? There's so much diversity in the church. White-skinned people, black-skinned People, different languages spoken in the church. Here in the United States, we speak English. If you ever have the opportunity to visit foreign nations, perhaps the Philippines, you'll hear them worship and sing the Psalter and songs to God in a different language. It's a beautiful thing. 
But what then? What unites us together, Filipinos and Americans? It's not the fact that we share the same political views. It's not the fact that we have similar interests in things of this earth, shared interests in hobbies or recreation. But the unifying power of the church of Jesus Christ is faith. And the diversity of the church reminds us again and again that it is faith in Jesus Christ that holds and that unites the church together. We confess that in the middle of answer 54, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith. But because we are earthly and because we are physical, we forget about the fact that it's faith that holds the people of God together. And then we can become very disappointed and very upset when there isn't this, this unity that we had wanted the church to have. If everybody doesn't agree with my idea or this person's idea, then we can become so easily upset about that. And in those situations, then we must ask ourselves the question, well, what is it that unites the church together? The unifying power of the church is Faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, church. Not yours. And not mine. Jesus gathers His church together. The Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers defends, and preserves. We can observe several truths gleaned from Psalm 80 which teach us about Jesus' work of gathering the church. Notice that the work of gathering is described in this psalm as the work of turning. Turning. Verse 3 Turn us again, O God, and cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Verse 19, the very end of the psalm, Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause Thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Turn. Even the children know that turning is repentance. That's how Jesus Christ gathers His church, by working repentance in the hearts of the members. Turning is necessary because the members of the church by nature stray from her. We're like that sheep that goes out of the sheepfold and thinks that we can go our own way and find food and water of our own selves, because of our nature, we're proud, we imagine that we're independent, and that we'll be okay out on our own. I'm strong. I've got enough power, experience. I'll be okay. I don't need to come fellowship with God's people every Sunday, twice every Sunday. 
because of that proud spirit that leads us to stray away from the church, it's necessary that God through Jesus Christ turn us, draw us back unto Himself. And then because we are by nature foolish and we fall into the same sins again and again, the psalmist adds that word, again, turn us again, O God. And the idea is that he already once had been turned unto God. He already was part of the church and the fellowship of God, but then he strayed away from it. And then recognizing the seriousness of straying from the church, he pleaded of God, turn us collectively, turn us unto Thee, O God. That's part of Jesus' work of gathering. significant part is working Repentance. And then notice as well from this psalm that Jesus' work of gathering involves separation. Jesus separates the church from the world. Verse 8, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Two different ways in that one verse we see separation. First, there's separation from out of Egypt. Recall the Israelites were captives in Egypt, which is a picture of our spiritual captivity to sin. And then, it says in that verse as well, verse 8, Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. And that's speaking of Canaan. Cast out the heathen that had occupied the land of Canaan while the Israelites were down in Egypt. Drove them out. The people of Jericho, the people of Jerusalem, drove them out of the land and then planted God's people there in the land of Canaan. And what that shows unto us, beloved, is that there is to be an antithesis between the people of God and the people of the world. It is not the goal or the objective of the church of Jesus Christ to fit in with the people of this world. It's not our goal as a congregation to draw the respect or the attention of the community. We're not trying to impress people upon this earth. But there is to be a separation as God draws us out of Egypt and brings us unto that promised land of Canaan. And then we notice here as Jesus does the work of gathering, that Jesus gives the church a special protected place to live. Verse 9, Thou preparedst room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. Where is this room, the place where this vine takes root, sends down her roots deep into the ground in order to be nourished by the water? 
and the nutrients of the soil. Ultimately, the place, the room that Jesus Christ prepares for the church is heaven. But that's the ultimate fulfillment. There's a fulfillment before we get to heaven. Where is that room right now where the church of Jesus Christ is gathered? Where do her roots go down deep? She receives water and nutrients to nourish her. Is it not, beloved, the church institute? That's the room that Jesus gives unto us. That's the place where Jesus gathers us together in the local Christian congregation. There, Jesus Christ gives unto us to drink of the water of life. There, He nourishes our souls unto life everlasting. And so we do not come then begrudgingly unto the local worship service, but with thanksgiving to God that He's provided this place for us in Jesus Christ, we come and are nourished and protected. Yet always the church institute remains in the midst of the world. And that comes out as well in this psalm that even though Jesus Christ is gathering the church unto Himself, yet for as long as the church is on this earth, she's, she's rubbing shoulders with the people of the world. We can, we can sense this tension that's expressed by the psalmist as he goes throughout this psalm. He seems to go almost back and forth as he gives this confession about the church. On the one hand, he'll confess the beauty and the glory and the protection of the church, but then on the other hand, he'll speak of the trials and the afflictions and the tears that are shed by the members of the church. Notice how he goes back and forth throughout this psalm. Verse 4, 5, and 6. We see the sorrow expressed. O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears. Verse 6, Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors. But then, right after that, he goes on and he describes the church as being large and powerful. Verses 8, 9, Ten, ten we'll read now, the hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. Imagine these tall, strong cedar trees which seem almost indestructible. And that's a picture there of the power of the church of Jesus Christ. But then after he describes the power of the church, then he goes back the other direction again. Verse 12. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? 
Verse 16, it, the church, is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Is it not the case that this fluctuation of the psalmist one direction and then the other direction describes precisely how we feel as we go through this earthly pilgrimage? Is it not the case that sometimes we feel that the church is very strong? We're confident in the power of the church of Jesus Christ. But then other times the church appears very vulnerable and very weak upon this earth. And we can become nervous, anxious about what's going to happen to the generations that follow in the church. The reason for this struggle is precisely this, beloved. The church institute is in the midst of the world. And for as long as the church is in the midst of this world, there is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There is warfare that is going on and that world is filled with utter hatred for the church. And so the world seeks to use all of her power, all of her advancements in technology as weapons against the bride, the flock, the vine of Jesus Christ. It is the Father's will that His people be gathered unto Him, not immediately, not instantaneously, but that His people be gathered unto Him incrementally. Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end of time gathers, defends, and preserves. And so as long as we are on this earth, even while Jesus is gathering us unto Him, we can expect conflict. God uses this for our chastisement. God uses this for our profit so that we don't put our hope in this earth. God uses this to drive away that which is sinful from our midst. And God uses this to give us hope that someday we'll be taken off this earth and brought into heaven We may have this confidence because our membership is in the church of Jesus. Answer 54 concludes that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Jesus makes us members a gift of God's grace. And to acknowledge that this is a gift of God's grace is to confess we don't deserve it. In fact, by nature, we would want nothing to do with membership in the church. Our natures are bent against being living members 
in the church. Our corrupt nature wants nothing to do with the other members of the church. At the very least, what we would want to do is be a dead member of the church. What's a dead member? A dead member is a warm body that sits on the pew and does nothing else. A dead member is somebody who never prays for the love and the unity of the church. Somebody who never seeks to help the neighbor. Somebody always critical, always complaining, always bemoaning the state of affairs of the church upon this earth. At best, that's what we would be. Not living members, but dead members. Those who come here to church against our will. But thanks be to God that Jesus makes us living members. Members who seek the peace of Jerusalem. Members who pray that the church grows, not just numerically, but spiritually. Members who are involved in the life of the church. Members who have compassion one for another. Members who listen, who empathize, who help, who encourage, and who in a brotherly spirit admonish one another as they seek to maintain the unity of Jesus church. That we are living members, beloved, is the gift of God's grace. What blessings we enjoy as members of this church of Jesus. In this church we are made strong. Verse 15, And the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. 17 repeats this idea, let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man whom thou madest strong for thyself. In the church, God gives unto us the spiritual defenses that we need as we fight against that threefold enemy. In the church, God leads us from the desert of this world into the oasis that He provides for us. In the church, God, through the operations of the Holy Spirit, gives unto us hope that this earth is not our home, but that someday we'll be delivered from this veil of tears and brought to be home with Jesus Christ. We advance from the church that is found upon this earth, and we go into the church that is secure in heaven. Thanks be to God that we are and forever shall remain living members 
of His church. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee that Thou dost cause Thy face to shine upon us, and thereby we are saved. Wilt Thou bless us as a congregation, preserve us by Jesus Christ Thy Son, draw us unto Thee, for no man cometh unto Thee, O Father, except Thou dost draw us to Thee. Forgive us our sins, and keep us for Jesus' sake. Amen.